This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we explain the complex presidential politics of Guatemala as the country heads into election season and an assessment of the civil war in Colombia. But first, Sierra Hancock is back this week with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Mexico's most notorious drug lord escaped from prison this past weekend, a brazen escape that embarrassed the government. Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman is the head of the Sinaloa drug cartel. Mexican authorities captured him 17 months ago and put him in a maximum security prison. Mexico's Minister of the Interior, Miguel Angel Osorio, pledged that the government would hunt down the drug lord and return him to prison. Desde el momento de su fuga, el Estado Mexicano... From the moment of his escape, the government of Mexico has employed all of our institutions and resources with the object of finding and capturing Joaquin Guzman. This is Guzman's second prison break. He escaped from a different prison in 2001 and remained free for 13 years. The Sinaloa cartel that he runs is considered Mexico's most dangerous and most profitable criminal organization. Mexican authorities believe the drug lord had help from at least two people. He escaped down a shaft and tunnel that was a mile long, an escape route that included lighting and a motorcycle mounted on rails to speed the getaway. The Mexican government is offering a reward of $3.8 million for information that leads to the capture of the cartel leader. Mexico officially opened its oil industry to outside investors for the first time in 80 years this week. But oil analysts say the results were a bit of a disappointment for the government. Until this week, Mexico's oil industry had been completely run by the state company called Pemex. But a consortium of oil firms from the U.S., the U.K., and Mexico successfully bid to develop two areas of the Gulf of Mexico. The Mexican government had hoped to sell development rights to 14 different parts of the Gulf. Pope Francis concluded his three-country tour of Latin America last weekend. He hailed a series of masses in Paraguay that the Vatican estimates were attended by as many as two million people. But once he was back in Rome, the Pope wanted to clarify a few details. First, he wanted to make clear he did not sip on coca tea, as many news organizations had reported, and he did not chew coca leaves, as the Bolivian government said he would. Instead, he said he drew energy from drinking traditional mate tea from Argentina. He also had second thoughts about that crucifix in the shape of a hammer and sickle presented to him by President Evo Morales of Bolivia, a gift the Pope had returned originally. The crucifix is based on a design by Luis Espinal Camps, a Jesuit priest who was tortured and killed by Bolivia's dictatorship in the 1980s. So he's keeping the crucifix and it traveled with him back to Rome. Singer Shoan Sebastian of Mexico lost his battle with bone cancer this week. Sebastian was known for his romantic ballads. He had won more Grammys and Latin Grammys than any other Mexican singer, and his music was popular throughout Latin America. He was 64 years old. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. Ponte agua fresca en un jarrón. 
the sounds of Shoan Sebastian. Thanks, Sierra. And now we turn to the political situation in Guatemala. Like other countries in the region, the spring and summer has seen an outpouring of anger toward the government, with tens of thousands taking part in protest marches since May. The protesters are angry about a series of high-level corruption scandals. The country's vice president, Roxana Baldetti, resigned over allegations she was part of a bribery scheme involving customs fees. Senior officials in the administration of President Otto Perez Molina stand accused of skimming funds from the country's social security and health care systems. And the country's Congress is investigating the president. Members of Congress have also been implicated in a corruption scandal involving real estate. Protesters want the president to resign and for the country to rid itself of corruption. All this comes during a heated election campaign with allegations of corruption also flying among the candidates. At least nine candidates are vying for president, but Manuel Baldizon looks to be ahead of the pack. He's the head of the Renewed Democratic Liberty Party, which also builds itself as the leader party, a pro-business conservative party. Baldizon finished second the last time Guatemala voted for a president, and the second-place finisher in many Guatemalan elections often ends up as president the next time around. To help us sort through the complexities of the Guatemalan situation, we contacted Julie Lopez, a journalist and author who currently is working for the Guatemalan online publication Plaza Publico. She's the author of the book Harardi, Death in God's Neighborhood, about the murder of Guatemala's archbishop. She joined us via Skype from Guatemala City. The numbers in which people have been protesting in the streets are unprecedented. Uh, for the most part, uh, throughout all the scandals in the last or in the recent years, uh, people just took it stoically and, and thought there was uh, no alternative and that, you know, for the next election, you just vote for the least worst candidate and brace yourself for the new government. But something uh, struck a nerve this time, uh, I guess there were so many corruption scandals one after the other that that people are um, really um, giving a voice to their um, outrage. Uh, and it's significant because of uh, what happened during the Civil War um, that affected the way people dealt, dealt with these uh, political issues. A lot of people were reluctant of voicing their um, annoyance or anger at the government, and it had to take a lot for people to overcome that. Now, from that, uh, I mean, now to decide whether this is going to become or a prompt a permanent change, that's another thing, because you are in front of a situation where you have a structure, corrupt structure that has been in place for decades, and it's not only a matter of throwing a few people in jail, but it's a matter of changing the whole system. And that's where it gets complex. When you talk about the unprecedented nature of this and the fact that people didn't protest in the past, uh, I guess we have to talk about the background of the current president, Otto Perez Morlina, with uh, a, a direct background as a, as a general in the Guatemalan military, someone who's had allegations of human rights abuses um, uh, cast against him uh, even before he became president, but uh, more so perhaps after he became president. Uh, he has certainly ties to um, Efrain Rios Montt, who was a 
prominent politician, some would say, is still yet not paid the dues that he's owed regarding the human rights abuses during his time ruling Guatemala in the 1980s. So um, are we talking about this matrix of power that exists in Guatemala that still has ties to the military and to the military that ran things during the middle part of the 20th century? Um, Yes and no, because what you see today is a corrupt structure that involves both military and civilians. Uh, what is true is that this structure stemmed from uh, the military governments in the, even back in the 70s. And uh, that's when um, they had complete control of all the government offices, uh, anything that had to do with tax collection or any aspect of the government. And, and the fact that it still survived uh, after... 30 years of civilian governments proves that it not only depends on, on the military. One way or another, next year Guatemala will have a new president. The preliminaries for that election are already underway. People are campaigning. Uh, are we likely to see Manuel Boldizon, who was the number two candidate the last time, um, be elected, or is it a wide open field? That's a good possibility. I mean, in the last few years, the presidents who have won the elections were participating for a second or a third time. Um, so it's quite possible that now it will be Mr. Baldison's turn. Although in the last election, you heard you know, people who went to vote that they didn't necessarily vote for Otto Perez Molina, but they were voting against Manuel Baldison. So now the question is, those who still don't want Baldison there, who are they going to vote for? Um, a lot of people are saying that they don't want to go vote at all. Maybe absenteeism might play a role, or uh, people who annul their vote might play a role. So it's going to be interesting to look at the polls closer to the election date uh, to see whether Baldiston still has a stronghold uh, among voters. Baldiston, how would you describe him politically? He is the leader of the leader party. Yes, well, he stemmed from the... Uh, official party that was in office from 2008 to 2012. In general terms, I guess he would he identifies himself with the uh, poor class. He says he wants to work for the people, for those who are at disadvantage. But uh, he's also, um, I guess, to put it in a informal way, stepped on too many toes of other candidates and uh, different sectors in the country. So he's not very, very popular in other sectors. For instance, um, he said he wanted to uh, destroy one of the main newspapers in Guatemala because they published criticism about him. So he came up with his own um, media conglomerate, a uh, couple of papers and magazines and a, a TV uh, program or a TV channel, rather. And so which newspaper would he, he like to get rid of? Uh, his, uh, Prensa Libre. And that's the generally regarded as the paper of record in Guatemala. Uh, yes, it is. But it's there's been a boom of electronic media, so there's a lot of magazines. and, and um, uh, I mean, it's still the, the biggest paper, but I'd say it's not as um, the only reference as it was maybe five, ten years ago. But he has also, uh, Baldison has also um, sued a couple of journalists that were publishing uh, criticism about him because um, a few months ago he was caught plagiarizing a whole book 
and he published it as original material. And when the magazine published the truth about you know the whole book being plagiarized, he didn't like that at all, and he he um, took them to court. Those are the kinds of actions that are not very popular among the media and other sectors. Any other candidates that you think we should discuss? There is um, Roberto Gonzalez. He's representing the private sector, and uh, a lot of people look at him as perhaps the least worst candidate to vote for. Um, He was in office uh, a few governments back. Um, uh, He was, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Minister of Energy. But um, what people are discussing mostly is um, Valdezon and, and what are his possibilities of um, of getting elected. I mean, he looks still like the strongest candidate, and perhaps in in second place um, Roberto Gonzalez because the I don't know if you remember the official party had their candidate who was the Minister of Communications, and then he quit the not only his candidacy, but the party. Uh, so the, the panorama has changed quite a bit. Uh, you also have Sandra Torres, who was the former first lady in the last government. But people say that whatever uh, discontent uh, people remember from the previous government will affect her chances. Uh, her strength is mostly outside the capital. So it depends on how she can garner support in the um, outside the capital um, to perhaps have a chance at reaching the presidency. But I believe that uh, Mr. Gonzalez and Valdison will be the two main candidates um, contending or competing for the presidency. What haven't we covered that you think is important to know? Well, none of the candidates have provided detailed plan of uh, government detail plan addressing the some of the main issues that affect the country um, one that would directly affect the u.s is what uh, they would do to curb immigration and also in terms of security like uh, drug trafficking or um, contraband or trafficking persons none of the which are issues that interest the u.s government quite a bit uh, none of them have offered any detailed plans of what they're going, what their policies are going to be. So that makes you wonder whether we're going to see a similar uh, scenario in the next government than what we've seen in the last four years. Thank you very much, Julie Lopez, the author of Harare, Death in God's Neighborhood, and currently a writer for the online publication Plaza Publico in Guatemala, joining us from Guatemala City via Skype. Thanks so much for being our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much for having me. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, Colombia's President Juan Manuel Santos announced a major military shakeup. He fired the leaders of all branches of the Colombian military, except for General Juan Pablo Rodriguez, the overall commander of military forces. 
The Colombian military also announced it would scale back its offensive against the country's main guerrilla group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a group often simply called the FARC. These announcements came after the FARC announced a unilateral ceasefire. The Colombian government and the FARC have carried on public peace negotiations for more than two years in Havana, Cuba. But the civil war is now 51 years old. It has claimed at least 220,000 lives, and the polls show three-quarters of all Colombians do not believe the peace negotiations will work. We spoke to Winifred Tate of Colby College earlier this summer about the situation in Colombia and her new book, Drugs, Thugs, and Diplomats, U.S. Policymaking in Colombia. She joined us via Skype from Waterville, Maine. Here's the second part of our interview. Um, This book is really about what different people thought was wrong with Colombia and how they thought they could fix it. So I'm really trying to tell the story of U.S. political culture and the things that went into um, the making of Plan Colombia, which was this massive aid package that was passed in 2000. Initially $1.2 billion, but grew to be many billions more um, over the next five years. Um, I tell the story of the militarization of U.S. drug policy and the implications for that. I'm also interested in tracing the history of how human rights activists and others tried to speak back to that policy and the results of that. I also spend a lot of time thinking about Colombia and Colombians and how they were interested in trying to participate in this policy that had such a tremendous impact on their lives, both the elite Colombians, um, the president, the ambassador, how they were incredibly agile in shaping the plan according to their own uh, political interests, but then also the peasant farmers who were growing coca in Putumayo and other southern regions, and how they largely unsuccessfully but very creatively tried to present themselves as um, legitimate and worthy participants in policy making in these um, programs that were so detrimental to their interests and their experiences, and really tried to show themselves not as criminal drug traffickers, but as small farmers who were really interested and invested in being citizens and participating in political life and um, building a better Columbia. Does the book trace for us? what the situation is for those people now. Uh, Do they end up getting the worst part of the uh, the war as it winds down? Well, the place the book ends is really um, in this story of Plan Columbia as a success. So I really try to take that apart. So Plan Columbia has been um, beginning in about 2007, was really marketed as um, a huge success by Washington pundits, by the political operatives that were instrumental in its design. So I try to really show um, in the conclusion kind of what that success looked for looked like for people on the ground. And so, yes, I talk a lot about paramilitarism and the ways in which paramilitary violence um, was a fundamental part of the counterinsurgency strategy that the Colombian government pursued and that um, during the time the U.S. was supporting the Colombian military with um, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, and the tremendously um, violent and destructive and brutal um, ways that that counterinsurgency violence impacted the lives of these um, primarily rural people, but um, people throughout Colombia. 
And also looking at the um, counter-narcotics efforts, particularly fumigation, which is the chemical, the spraying of these chemical herbicides over huge amounts of territory. Um, and this, interestingly enough, just in the last couple weeks has finally been, um, the Colombian government has finally said that they're going to end this policy because of um, scientific evidence, which many of us have long argued that this, this um, chemical herbicides were in fact dangerous to human health, did have tremendously negative environmental consequences, and these findings have finally been endorsed um, by the World Health Organization, and so the Colombian government has actually finally suspended these operations just in the last couple weeks. Um, in many ways, this is a tremendously important um, policy change, but it's also very, very late for people who have suffered under this policy for the past decade and a half in Colombia, almost two decades now. So a few areas that I'd like to unpack from that particular answer. One has to do with paramilitaries. We're told that the paramilitary operations in Colombia were dismantled. Uh, do you feel in your book that they were successfully dismantled or are paramilitaries still a problem? Well, in the book, I'm really looking at what was the role of the paramilitaries and what were they doing um, and how can we understand them as a form of proxy violence for the state. And um, so looking at how they developed to be so tremendously pervasive, um, really starting in the late 1990s and coming into the early 2000s, really a dominant form of political violence that was, I argue, really the result of the fact that the Colombian military needed to show themselves as professional, as human rights respecting forces. So they really outsourced and privatized their political violence to these paramilitary forces. At the same time, um, by denying this violence for local people, this was just another form of state terror. So they would, um, I show how in these, in southern Colombia, small farmers, priests would be in meetings with um, military officers and they would say, you know, we don't know anything about this political violence. Nothing's happening here. If you know anything about it, you have to tell us. When these same residents could see these military officers working with the paramilitary forces and so um, these denials served this double purpose of presenting themselves as this great partner for the U.S. military as well as being a form of state terror for the people in um, local regions. Now what happened to the paramilitary forces was um, the demilitarization, um, demobilization program that went forward um, from 2003 to 2007. Uh, more than 30,000 paramilitary troops went through these demobilization programs. But what didn't happen was a demobilization or a de-articulation of the paramilitary power structures. So one of the things um, that my next book will look at is this ongoing life of paramilitarism in Colombia and the ways in which paramilitaries as a massive military force that would go in and occupy territory was really a function of a particular counterinsurgency need. Um, at a particular historical moment. But if we understand paramilitarism as structures of um, violence that respond to elite economic and political interests that are about safeguarding those spaces and enacting violence against people that challenge um, those monopolies, 
that's very much an ongoing issue in Colombia, and you can see that today in the violence against land rights and environmental activists, I think, most clearly, because those are the places where paramilitarism really allowed people to consolidate economic control. Let's go back to the herbicides for, for just a bit. Um, this news that Roundup, basically a common weed killer, had been sprayed in Colombia as a way to fight drugs in the area for, for a very long time. You mentioned that, that those flights have been suspended and, and are likely going to be canceled. At least that's where the Colombian government seems to be moving. But how was this concern met for years and years from authors like you and others working in this, in this area in the U.S. And, and elsewhere? Did people take your complaints and concerns seriously? Well, the, the chemicals that were used to spray were some of the ingredients in the common weed killer Roundup. The chemical compound is glyphosate. It's produced by um, the corporation Monsanto's. And um, we don't actually know, no one's ever been um, able to find out what the f- kind of complete chemical composition was that was sprayed because it's a trademark trade secret. But we know that it's much stronger in its concentrations, and we know that it's um, been accused by many people uh, in the regions of having a tremendous amount of um, both health impacts as well as environmental impacts. Um, In the book, I trace how um, local activists, including public health workers, um, doctors, nurses in the region, tried to use science to make an argument that this this herbicide was actually causing these health impacts. They documented increased deaths due to diarrhea. They documented massive die-offs of fish and other wildlife and farm animals in regions that were sprayed by herbicides. They also um, documented skin rashes and other kinds of health impacts. But these Complaints were dismissed out of hand over and over again by U.S. and Colombian government officials with the argument that um, because there were no baseline health studies, you couldn't prove that these things were an impact of uh, the spraying campaigns, and that because it was inherently unhealthy to live in these kinds of jungle conditions as a poor peasant, you couldn't prove causality, that these were the result of fumigations. In uh, many cases, <laughs> government officials, particularly the ambassador and um, some of the other embassy personnel would say, you know, it's so safe, I'll drink a glass of glyphosate before you, but um, they would never actually do it. And now, of course, the World Health Organization has said, well, in fact, these chemical compounds do cause cancer long term, they do cause um, miscarriages, they do cause all of these Um, health impacts that um, are really, they're long-term, they're devastating for people who don't have access to, I mean, in particular to populations that are so vulnerable that don't have access to long-term health services in many regions. Um, So I think we're going to be seeing the consequences of this spring for many, many years to come. Anything else about the book that you think we should consider? People who are interested in the drug war can really um, learn about these kinds of connections and also learn about Colombia. People who are interested in Colombia can think about U.S. policymaking and the ways in which um, kind of U.S. political culture shapes that relationship. So I'm really hopeful that people from coming at it from both sides, from the U.S. and the Colombian side, can find um, new things and really use this as an opportunity for opening up, once again, this debate 
about Plant Columbia, particularly at a time when, you know, the Colombian U.S., with Colombians, with U.S. support, Colombians are now um, being sent to Afghanistan. They're being sent to other places to teach the things that they learned through Plan Columbia. So I think it's, um, in many ways, Plan Columbia is um, a policy that happened in the past, but the repercussions are still going on. And I think it's v- very dangerous at this historical moment to take on face value these um, assertions that it was such a successful program. Thank you so much, Winifred Tate of Colby College the author of the new book, Drugs, Thugs, and Diplomats, U.S. Policymaking in Colombia, among other books. Join us via Skype from Waterville, Maine, on Latin Pulse today. Thank you. Thank you. This summer, Latin Pulse is available on a variety of new platforms, including the new website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find us there at Latin America Goes Global, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>